Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Helen Bond and Jane Taylor, welcome to the Church Times podcast. Thank you very Thank much you for having us. <laughs> Thank you. So obviously here today to talk about your book, Women Remembered. I just, I mean, it's a very basic question to start with, but why do you think women have been overlooked and who has done the overlooking during church history? Almost everybody. <laughs> I, think, I think there's many reasons why they've been overlooked. I mean, the, the main one is that Christianity emerged in a patriarchal time. And even without wanting to forget about the women, people just told the story as the story of what men were doing. So after Jesus came the 12 male disciples and then Paul and then fathers of the church. And, and so it went on and it was a story of what men were doing and how men were spreading the message. But I think that at the same time, there's, um, and we explore this in the book, that um, there were some reasons why women's contributions were perhaps minimised, partly perhaps because it wasn't always good for Christianity to admit that there had been lots of women there at the beginning. Pagans tended to think that a religion that had too many women in it um, was a bad thing. So it was always good just to kind of, you know, let them let them fall away. And um, and once Christianity realized that it was there for the long haul and that, you know, the end of the world wasn't coming back quite so fast, it then really tried to sort of adapt to the world around it and to fit in. And it developed hierarchies. And of course, they were male hierarchies. And that's just been um, perpetuated, I think, by 2000 years of, of male, male biblical scholars. So, yeah, people haven't really been looking for the women, I think, until fairly recently. In the book, we have um, focused on a particular anti-Christian writer, a philosopher called Celsus, who's, who writes all about how awful Christianity is in the second century. And uh, we only know his writings from how Origen, the church uh, scholar, the Christian scholar Origen in the, the third century, responded to Celsus. But it's clear that one of the things that Celsus said about Christianity was it was founded on the witness of a delirious woman. And it was, this, as Helen said, it was the sort of it was the sort of religion that only would be believed in by women, slaves and small children. And that kind of uh, criticism means that Christians have to adopt a, a defensive position. So if you read the text as, as if they are, in fact, quite defensive about why we have so many women in our movement, then it, it means you start a reading strategy that opens up a different reality that is actually within the text. And there are clues within the text. But you don't see the, the, the clues to the women in the text because it's like a light is being shone on the men to say, OK, look, these are good, brave men here that we've got in our story and they're important. And this is a, a, a story that is going to be approved of in a very patriarchal world, as Helen said. So you don't read a text as if it's just giving you a point of view that is just um, 
you know, this is how it is, this is, you know, the reality. You read the, the text as, as pointing to a broader reality than we're shown just on the page. Yes, I think you talk in the book about it's like detective work where you're, you're trying to find clues. And I think you also say that you're, I mean, bringing this to a wider audience, some of this is better established in, in the academic world, but did you feel there was a need to communicate this more widely to the laity and even to the wider world beyond the church? Yeah, massively so. I mean, a lot of this has been talked about in academic circles. I mean, since the, the 80s or so, Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza was a sort of very well-known and sort of one, of the, one of the early pioneers in this. And in academic circles, I think it's generally well-known that there were quite a lot of women around Jesus. But I think uh, both of us are always amazed whenever we go to talk to church groups or, um, you know, other other people, how little of this seems to have got out there. And that's maybe partly academics fault. You know, academics aren't always very good at, um, at telling people that what they've been finding out. But I, I do think there are some, you know, some churches that don't particularly want to hear this kind of thing, too. So. And, and I think we've got lots of new evidence in the book, too. But um, but the basic ideas do go back a few decades and I think are pretty well established. I'm going to ask a bit about the research for the book, because you obviously have the um, biblical New Testament material, but also some extra biblical sources you draw on. I mean, can I ask first about the press about your work on, on the Gospels? And I mean, did you detect any differences between the Gospels in, in how women are portrayed or what clues you could find about the, um, the women who, who, who were followers of Jesus? Uh, actually, that's quite an interesting question because we, we really wanted to focus on the actual women to, to show that these were right. uh, disciples of Jesus and, and try and get into the stories of these named and unnamed women and contextualise them and do some work in terms of giving us a broader picture of who these women were. But before we get to that point, we have to do a background on, on what the Gospels are, um, what they're doing, how they're presenting gender. Um, but we didn't forefront that in our book. <laughs> um, but you're right that, that the Gospels do present gender in somewhat different ways. You know, gender, we're talking about how men behave, how women behave, what are the, the right ways of being for, for men and, and women. Um, and you can compare them and contrast them to, to some degree because we know that the, the Gospels had a particular order of composition, and this is probably going to be familiar to quite a number of your listeners, that um, Mark was written first and then Matthew and Luke were written sometime later, and then John was written last. That's usually the, 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 the standard understanding. And uh, Matthew and Luke used Mark in their own composition, and John, it's increasingly understood, used Mark as well, um, and probably also Luke and even Matthew. Um, this is a, a view that is coming back more into the fore. So we can see, it's very useful for us to, to remember that composition order, because you can look at how a story is portrayed in the Gospel of Mark, for example, and then how it's portrayed in Matthew, and then in Luke, and, and then in John, and see there are these subtle changes. Um, and sometimes these subtle changes are adopting a more defensive position, which I think one can see in, in, in Matthew, 
uh, particularly. Um, and in other cases, perhaps a less defensive position, which you can see maybe in parts of John, where there are more women and they do more stuff. So there is there are these changes over the, the different Gospels as you see them negotiating with expectations about what women are supposed to do. And you also, the, obviously, the pastoral epistles are, are much talked about. I was, I was interested in your thoughts on those. I mean, often there are passages from St. Paul or, or letters purporting to be St. Paul, which are seized upon as evidence either of um, an anti-woman position. But I mean, is there much more going on there, do you think, in the pastoral epistles? Well, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think obviously the fact that they have to tell women to be silent and, you know, women are women to remain silent or ask their husbands at home um, and, and to limit uh, women's activities, even limiting you know, the way that women are dressing. Um, I think all of that does suggest that, you know, quite, quite the opposite is happening. So um, in, in a way that that's evidence for a late first century, even perhaps early second century world in which women are still occupying or trying to occupy certain uh, prominent positions within the churches. But obviously the author of the pastoral epistles is um, trying to use the legacy of Paul to, to stamp that out and um, to tell them what women ought to be doing. But I mean, that that's, is another strategy too. the sort of adding in of, of passages. There's a, a passage in 1, 1 Corinthians um, where Paul suddenly in chapter 14 seems to be saying completely the opposite to what he's just been saying earlier on in chapter 11. He says that women can prophesy as long as they cover their heads. And then suddenly in chapter 14, there's this passage that seems to be saying completely the opposite and that women ought to be silent in the churches. And, and that's probably an interpolation. It's probably somebody in the late first century, maybe even slightly later, who's reading these Pauline letters and doesn't quite agree with the great man and so adds something into the, the margin. And, and, and at some point, what was in the margin gets put into the text. So, so yeah, you can see in these texts, as Joan said, as, as you go sort of later and later, you get sort of more strident attempts to, to limit women and to limit their activities within the churches. I'm sorry, I just thought of a question I should have asked earlier, which I think is quite important, which I know you address in the book, is really to do with the position of women at Jesus, in, during Jesus' time, that the social conditions, the roles they had in the household or in, in wider society. And could, could you just say a little bit about that and how that shed light, sheds light on your research here? Yes, we start off thinking about that because it's really important to understand the, the gendered world of the, of the first century. And frankly, you know, thinking about these texts and the defensiveness of, of some of our texts, we have to be careful not to export that world into the present day, um, thinking that that's an essential part of, <laughs> of the, the Christian message. Um, because in, in the Christian message arising in this world, there are all sorts of constraints applied to what was possible because of this world. And in this world, um, you have quite strict gender boundaries, as you have in many parts of the world today, that women were expected to do, or especially ordinary village women were expected to do certain jobs, to, uh, to stay close to home, to do the homework kind of jobs. Um, there wasn't 
a great deal of mixing between the, the genders. So um, men were were supposed to do one thing and women were, were supposed to do another. There were um, in, in more elite households, there would be a men's dining room where men got together and talked in the ways men were supposed to talk. It would be a place where uh, education for boys took place. Um, the rest of the house was the place where women and small children congregated and, and would eat separately. So this is quite a normal Hellenistic you know, way of, of doing things. And in Judea in the first century, there was real, you know, Jews weren't different from anyone else in this way. In, in the Greco-Roman world, this was quite normal. If you were well off as a, a woman, you had more freedom. You had you were sort of almost considered a an honorary male, and and certain great women would be complimented for their masculinity. You know, they could think straight. <laughs> And then she could show courage. And uh, the, the Empress Livia, for example, great queens like Cleopatra or um, the Jewish queen Salome Alexandra, you know, that you, if you were well to do, you had some of the attributes of masculinity in the ancient world. But for a poor village woman um, or an enterprising businesswoman, <laughs> you know, go, going forward in the in the merchant world, there were all sorts of things to negotiate in, in terms of gender. If you ask you, who, who would you, who would be present at a female version of the Last Supper with Jesus, do you think? <laughs> I wonder if this is a way into talking about some of the, 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 the women you talk about in the, in the different chapters in the book. Well, I, I think we would argue that the, there were women there at the Last Supper anyway, that, you know, we don't believe Da Vinci's painting um, massive effect though it has had on our sort of mental picture of these things I mean in even in the gospels in in Mark's gospel he says that um, two disciples went to prepare the, the Passover and then Jesus comes with the 12 the 12 male disciples so you know presumably these two disciples who've gone to prepare the Passover are still there so it does suggest you know even the text itself that that it's more than just this 12. So I, I think it's very very likely and, and we argue this in the book that Mary and Martha from Bethany Perhaps they were even the ones who, who went and prepared the, the, the Passover anyway, because Jesus is staying with them. I mean, it would be very strange if Jesus is staying with them for Passover. And then when he goes to eat the meal, you know, he, he leaves his hosts behind. So it seems almost certain that they would have been there. But, but we also know that Jesus came to Jerusalem with many women. That's what uh, Mark says. And, and all the Gospels back that up. The idea that, you know, Jesus has arrived in in Jerusalem with many women who've come from Galilee and, and, and know him well, know his message. They're full disciples, just like the men are. So people like uh, uh, Susanna and Joanna, Salome, we hear about, and uh, lots of Marys. <laughs> There's always lots of Marys. Mary Magdalene, too, of course. So, yeah, I mean, we know the names of quite a lot of these and some of them we just know sort of the names of, of their, their children too, you know, Mary, the mother of um, so-and-so, but um, probably a, a whole gaggle of women, at least, at least a dozen women. Do you think there have been any periods in, in church history where women's contributions were welcomed and, and recognised or is the present day as, as good as it's been, do you think? 
Well, I don't know if the present day is. <laughs> no, no, sure. We'd like to restore some of the things that were happening in the first century. Let's get to the first century. Look, we're, we're trying to create an, uh, an image of what was really happening in the Jesus movement and those that followed in the, uh, in the Pauline churches. We're trying to open up a view. And you, you've got to remember that the Jesus movement was a movement that was expecting the transformation of the world. They were expecting something that was really radical in terms of a changed reality where the kingdom of God was going to come. God was going to oversee the world. Um, the dominion of God was going to be started. And, and the, this present world, which has gone very wrong, uh, is not the, the way God wants the world to be, is going to be reestablished. And that, uh, so the kingdom of God is going to be reestablished in a, a world that is very flawed. And in that sort of mentality, you're not thinking about, okay, let's conform to the way the world is. All sorts of things in the world are actually up for negotiation about how people should be. And the idea is that the, the Holy Spirit should really guide you, um, that, that the Holy Spirit should empower your community on the basis of prophecies like Joel 2, where you know your young men and young women are going to dream dreams and old men and old women are going to, to, to have this force of the Holy Spirit prophesying, creating part of this new reality. And we see that in Acts 2, you know, where Joel's uh, prophecy is, is realized. So you have to imagine the whole movement as having this momentum that creates all sorts of different ways of being. It's not a sort of place where you're just establishing a, a, a new status quo that's going to fit into society, you're really radically changing society. So, um, yeah, in, in that world, in that world, the way men and women are going to behave is not the sort of thing where, okay, we just need to do what our families say we are supposed to do in our villages. And that's what we have really in, in our text. And a number of, of sayings of Jesus where you can see that he is expecting people to take quite personal responsibility for their beliefs, for their new direction, and, and go with it. And, um, and so really in the first century, I think you've got patterns of behavior that were more radical, really, than we have today. <laughs> and, and do you think that was mainly driven by this expectation of the coming return of Christ and, and the consummation of, of the kingdom, which I guess 2,000 years on, it's, it's harder to have that sense of imminent arrival. And I guess the, 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 the radicalism that accompanies that. Yeah, I think very much so. And, and that's, that's a really important thing about early Christianity, that, that you know, they were living in the end times. They, they passionately believed that it was going to be very, very soon. And, and their job was to get the message out, go and tell people the good news as soon as possible. You know, and, and that's really why um, in that kind of fervor, I think, you know, that's why um, or at least one of the reasons why women's work was accepted by everyone within the movement, because, of course, you know, um, you just have to use everybody to get the message out. And, and one of the problems was that when this expectation of the end started to recede and Christians realized that they were in the world for the long term and they started to establish structures and started to think about 
what they look like to outsiders and wanting to conform, keep their head down, don't attract attention. All of these things meant that um, it was the poor old women who got sort of pushed down and uh, told, you have to be like the outside world. But, you know, I mean, not, not just were they expecting the end of the world, but the message of Jesus is really radical too. It's, it's, a, it's completely going against the whole sort of first century idea about honor and shame and, you know, don't go chasing honor, don't go chasing glory, don't think about esteem. It's all about service and, um, you know, being a slave. That's very, very radical message that, again, that too, I think, got lost as, um, as Christians conformed to mainstream society. So just wondering about your view of the, with the Church of England and the wider Anglican Communion and whether it's receptive to, to these ideas. Well, the Anglican Communion has an advantage over maybe some other churches and that it is very diverse and it's founded on, on the idea of a shared worship um, without being too fierce in terms of theologies. I think it's one of the great um, strengths, actually, of any religion, <laughs> that, that it allows diversity, that it allows um, freedom to explore and go in, in different directions and people following their hearts and their truth. So we've given talks in, in all sorts of different places. We gave a talk at St. Paul's Cathedral and um, and you would think that that, that symbolises in some way um, Anglicanism, you know, the, 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 this is this great structure of the, the centre of London. And the, there is there, of course, Paula Gooder, who is creating such a, a wonderful, progressive, interesting community there and others there in, in uh, the cathedral. It's very, very exciting to see what is going on there in their education uh, program. But, um, but you see the same sort of thing, in, and I see the same sort of thing, and I'm sure Helen does too, in, in lots of places where we give church talks. So I think there always has to be space for rethinking, for learning, for re-energising, uh, in any faith community, and I, I certainly think it's there within the Anglican Communion. The title is Women Remembered, so it's it's about remembering the women um, more generally, but we're also interested in the way that these women have been remembered through the centuries. So we're, we were very keen not just to look at written texts here. We also were very much aware that a lot of women's history doesn't get written down you know it tends to be oral it's what women are telling one another it's women's stories women's poems women's hymns um you know material culture too perhaps and so one of the things we were doing in the book is not just looking at written things but but looking at uh, traditions traditions that you know there was a cave here dedicated to Salome, perhaps, or, you know, at the site where Mary of Bethany's house was, where the guest house was, and looking at uh, these traditions, like the ones that Celsus um, keeps going. Um, I mean, Celsus says that um, there were groups of women who followed Mary, Mariamis, he calls them, and um, groups of women who followed um, other females. And it's just a kind of a tiny little glimpse. But um, some of these things suggest that um, there's a whole sort of 
another history here that that the texts themselves have um, let slip and there are these tiny little echoes in the um, perhaps in the oral world too. When we did our documentary, you saw the, the Salome cave that we went to. And um, it, it really is amazing uh, because there's all this graffiti on the walls and only part of it has actually been studied thus far. There's still a lot more to do in, in this cave. Um, and it's not known. It's not open to the public. And um, it's very difficult to understand the, the context in which people came to the cave because that whole tradition has been lost. In fact, we thought when we first <laughs> were, were thinking about making the documentary um, that we would call it Lost Women because <laughs> we're, we're, it's, it's not just women remembered, it's also so much has been lost that it just hasn't been written down um, and thought worthy of remembrance. So um, we have gone on this quest really to try and consciously remember, look, look not only for the positive clues, but try and think outside of these clues to create a context for understanding these women. And, and you'll see in the, in the book also that sometimes we just go on these imaginative journeys as well. What, what, what would it have been like for Joanna um, as the wife of Cusa, um, Herod's Epitropos's uh, administrator? Um, what would it have been like for these women or the mother of, of, of Jesus um, in, in Nazareth? Um, so um, that's actually also a technique that Elizabeth Schisler-Fiorenza um, advised women to do because there's only so much you can do in terms of the positive memory, enter into this world um, imaginatively, creatively, to, to create some plausible scenarios. And both Helen and I... You know, we, we're steeped in this world, as you say, you know, in the first century, we, we, live, we live in the, in the first century, partly. We wanted to draw on our knowledge as, um, as scholars and really bring this to bear on um, recovering these women. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.